1: One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, Tiger Zouave. Those are the words to a cheer from the United States Zouave cadets, led by Elmer Ellsworth in 1860. Within a year, the 24-year-old was known throughout the country. The New York Times wrote, "...never has a man of Ellsworth's age commanded such national regard and respect in so short a space." Well, Now it's 2022, and you and I have heard of Ellsworth, but almost no one else remembers that name. Fortunately, Meg Groling does, and she's written the first biography of Ellsworth in 60 years. It's called First Fallen, the Life of Colonel Elmer Ellsworth, the North's First Civil War Hero. Join us for a talk with her tonight on Civil War Talk Radio.
0: play finding your frequency podcast
2: if that doesn't work try adding on TuneIn in or on iHeartRadio radio or on apple podcasts
0: the internet's number 1 talk station number 1 talk station voiceamerica.com you are listening to civil war talk radio
1: Coming to you as usual from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, but as always not representing the university or any of its components, speaking only for myself and our guest likewise speaks only for herself tonight as we always do here at Civil War Talk Radio. It is uh the middle of February 2022, the grim month, the long span between the beginning of second semester and spring break, a long stretch without any uh, days off, and the weather is cold and gray most of the time in many places. Uh, Here, uh, it's hard to, to fathom, but it is simultaneously the Winter Olympics on television, where uh, United States hockey was eliminated last night. Good match, but but they couldn't win. And the uh, Russian uh, cheating figure skaters continue to uh, twirl about in spite of taking illegal drugs. It's just, why well, have rules if you're just going to play it that way? While that's going on, it's also baseball season here in eastern North Carolina. Uh, the ECU Pirates opened their baseball season for spring of 2022 this weekend if it doesn't rain uh, which it's supposed to so uh, who knows is it winter is it summer hard to tell Uh, ECU baseball tickets season tickets have sold out this year for the first time ever Uh, the pirate nation is all excited for baseball Mm -hmm. so we'll turn our attention to that when we're not talking civil war which is what we do all the time and we'll continue to do uh, in just a moment. Tonight's non-paying and unaware that we exist sponsor is Coffee Plus Spice. Coffee Plus Spice, that's a plus sign between the words coffee and spice, is a relatively new, tiny, house-sized restaurant that opened here in Greenville a little while ago. Uh, Emily and I have gone there several times. The food is great. Uh, it's very small. We want to do all we can to support it and give Greenville one more decent place to eat. If you want to go to a chain, you're, you're in hog heaven here, but local, small, independent restaurants are, are few and far between, so we're happy about this one. Last time we went there, though, the thing about living in a small town is you see people, and uh, sure enough, my wife said, oh, here, come a group of parents of her students from the school where she teaches and the parents came in and they they said hi and sat down and then they just carried on they were so loud and used bad language out loud it was embarrassing Um, but everywhere you go you see people you know that's what happens Uh, anyway if you're in Greenville uh, they're open in the mornings for coffee and evenings a couple nights a week for dinner other local things, uh, the Wise Fork Battlefield Tour that I've mentioned in a few previous shows is not happening this Friday, February 18th, 2022. By the time you download this, it's probably past that anyway, but they're expecting bad weather, so no. The big news of the week here at Civil War Talk Radio is uh, the the merchandise is here. Uh, the merch is about to be available for the many of you, and by many, I mean two or three who have requested uh, that I make available a Civil War Talk Radio T-shirt or coffee mug or some other thing you can you can uh, wear or use. Uh, I've arranged to do that uh, with the website T-Public, all one word, teepublic.com uh, the i'm not sure how to find our storefront on teepublic.com yet except through a, a special link and i'm the only person with that link but i'll give it to you by putting it on our website www.impedimentsofwar.org uh, in the next day or or 3 And uh, likewise, on the Facebook page, Impediments of War. So if you're downloading this sometime in the middle of February 2022, you'll be among the first to see the uh, T-shirts and other tchotchkes you can get with a Civil War Talk radio logo on them. Uh, We'll talk more about that in future events, uh, in future shows, uh, once once the, the link is posted. But... It'll be interesting to see, uh, see if, if anyone's interested in that material. You can also, while you're at www.impedimentsofwar.org, you can see who's going to be on the show next week. Uh, Jackie Bedell, the, uh who's an archives specialist at the National Archives Records Administration in Washington, D.C., will be here to talk about tin types, uh, personal tin types that are being found in the pension records, and now they're being digitized and so on. That's our plan, at least. Hopefully, that will go forward. Uh, On the 2nd of March, the following Wednesday, Laurie and Foote rejoins us. Her newest book is called Rights of Retaliation, and promises to be very interesting, We'll take a break, spring break. will blessedly be here on March 9. And then we'll come back with uh, Christopher Thrasher's new book, uh, Suffering in the Army of Tennessee. It's a social history of the army after from Atlanta to the end of the war and getting a lot of good press. So lots of good things coming up. The Civil War tours, uh, This Hallowed Ground, are still on for May and June through Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours. Sign up for those. And... Uh, hope to see you on one of those tours. Well, our guest tonight, uh, Meg Groling, has written the first biography of Colonel Elmer Ellsworth in 60 years. Uh, Ruth Painter Randall was the last one to do that, and uh, Ruth Painter Randall was, of course, the wife of the historian James Randall. James Randall was the graduate advisor of the legendary uh, David Herbert Donald, who was my graduate advisor, so... Ruth Painter Randall is my intellectual, uh, I guess, great, I guess, grandmother um, following that trend. Uh, Of course, I I never met the Randalls before my time, but just drawing that personal connection here. But let's find out about Colonel Elmer Ellsworth. Uh, Meg Groling, are you there? Welcome to the show, and I, I am apologize here. on previous shows for mispronouncing your last name. I once had my last name mispronounced; I've never gotten over it, so uh, I, I, I'm sorry to have done that, but uh, glad to get it right tonight. So, you have written Well, Like, what,
3: like I say, it, it, it makes my husband happy. So,
1: <laughs> well, good. good. That, that, uh, here, here is um, the, this book about. Colonel Elmer Ellsworth, somebody uh, many of us have heard of. Uh, let me start with you though, what, uh, what, what initially triggered your interest in the, the Civil War generally or, or Ellsworth particularly?
3: I've always been interested in the Civil War. I was raised by uh, parents and grandparents who were history buffs and um, um, always pointed out, well, we're related to so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. And, so and, so and, so and, so. and uh, I wasn't so interested in who we were related to as uh, as what the the general, you know, what was going on, that they were so important in the first place. Uh, and I was always a Civil War buff, but uh, life intervenes, as we all know, and I decided not to become an uh, academic historian, but uh, taught math. Uh, for many years, and uh, I was in a new school, and I was, it was a middle school, and I was sitting at a table, and um, my reenacting days were over, and I didn't really know anybody in in this end of California. I was from Southern California, not Northern California, and the principal walked by, and, you know, being the kind fellow that he is, um, stopped and said, oh, hello, and I said, hello, and he pointed to a picture that was on the wall above where I was sitting. And he said, well, do you know who that is? That was a picture of a man in a suit from the 1940s. And I says, well, I believe that's our founder. Our school was E.E. Uh, e. Brownell Middle School. And he goes, yes, that, that's correct. And then he said, I, I wonder what E.E. E. stands for. And without even thinking about it, I said, oh, I'm sure it stands for Elmer Ellsworth. And he looked at me and I looked at him and he goes, Who is Elmer Ellsworth? And I said, Well, he was the first uh, Civil War, Union Civil War officer to die in America's Civil War. And it turned out that I was now working for a principal who was a serious Civil War buff. He found out I was. Um, and, you know, the rest is, as they say, history. I found out about uh, Ruth Painter Randall's book when I went home that evening and Googled up Elmer Ellsworth to see if there was a biography of him, and that's when I realized that the last bio that had been written was uh, published in um, 1960. And I thought, well, this—I've uh, always been interested in the B list of uh, you know historical characters. And um, always interested in the beginning of the war, you know, the early war years or the years just before the war. Um, And everything just sort of fell into place. It was, aha, I think I'll write a biography. Um, So that's sort of how that happened. In the middle of it, I decided um, I'd get a master's degree in military history because I (laughs) didn't want my publicity to say, Civil War buff and retired math
1: teacher, but. Mm. Well, it's probably not a bad idea. There are people who, who establish credibility that way. <coughs> Excuse me. But uh, I would say the, the uh, teaching at the middle school level is a. Uh, it deserves full credit. I, I admire and respect people who manage that. I think it's... A, when I worked in a museum and trained docents, uh, the docents universally were happy to take elementary tours and high school tours, but you couldn't get them to sign up the middle school tours. Those kids are rough. Uh, they're, uh, they're, they're going well, through imagine a difficult time. how rough time.
3: they are when you're trying to teach math.
1: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, uh, so Elmer Ellsworth... Um, Uh, he you start, well it's a biography you start with his youth Um, he is, as you say, on the B list of Civil War figures Uh, do we know anything about
3: his youth? Well, uh, Elmer Ellsworth always sort of put it out there that he came from a very impoverished family and to hear Ellsworth tell it one thing you learned very quickly about Ellsworth was that uh, much as I hate to admit this, he was kind of a diva, and um, so if he could make his uh, upbringing sound worse than it was, he was going to, to take advantage of that. Well, um, I worked with children of poverty, and, and I know mm-hmm. that true children of poverty do not become friends, you know, bosom buddies of people who become the President of the United States almost overnight, or mm-hmm. uh, become trusted associates of governors of states or um, editors of newspapers. And one thing that, is, um, that just didn't make sense to me was how Elmer could matriculate through um, society so easily and yet claim to be uh, uh, poverty-stricken. So it turns out he wasn't poverty-stricken. His parents were working class, but mm-hmm. you know not rich but um they always paid taxes they owned their own property um they were hit hard by the uh panic of 1837 just like everybody was in mm-hmm. what was the united states man um and uh his dad who was a tailor at the time um you know people didn't have money to have handmade bespoke clothing anymore uh so his father got a job uh and was trained as a butcher so like i say he he came from a working class family um and he was always interested in the military he was a very good student um uh, well-behaved little boy um one of the things that. I think it's funny is that he uh, went to a temperance lecture when he was nine years old, and decided that alcohol was so evil that he was going to sign the temperance pledge, signed it, and apparently never broke the temperance pledge until I mean, ever. So, hmm.
1: um, I, I guess uh, I, at nine it's probably easier to swear off alcohol than than at a more advanced stage. Uh, but as you say, he did maintain <laughs> it uh, for for his entire. Uh, short life. So he was born in 1837, same year as the the, the panic of 1837, and, and grows up in this middle class yeah. or, or working class household. Uh,
3: working class. He, household. You see, working you see how his father panicked that he's got a baby coming, he's got to get a job. So
1: Right. But, so
3: yeah, you know, his parents were fine.
1: So uh, Elmer himself uh, set sail at a fairly young age. We'll come back and talk about that. We're going to take a short break right now and come back and talk more with our guest, Meg Groling. She's the author of First Fallen, The Life of Colonel Elmer Ellsworth, The North's First Civil War Hero. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio.
3: Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern, on Voice America Variety.
0: Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio.
1: And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Meg Groling, author of First Fallen, The Life of Colonel Elmer Ellsworth, Ellsworth, the North's First Civil War Hero. Uh, uh, we established in, in the first segment a little bit about Ellsworth's childhood. If you're listening to this show, you, you probably know something about how uh, Ellsworth died early in the war. We'll certainly talk about that uh, uh, tonight. But before the war, he uh, he's a child of working-class parents, goes off to uh, become a self-made man, as, as one did in that era. Uh, he goes to Chicago. Chicago is a great place to be young and single. My younger daughter is there doing that right now. Uh, I did that uh, as a young man. It was a great place to start one's independent life uh, what was it like for Ellsworth to start his uh, independent life in, in the 1850s
3: well this is exactly what you were saying the big cities at that time were New York and San Francisco and Chicago mm-hmm. New York was an old city San Francisco was a city that was very far away so Chicago sort of seemed like uh, the, the place to be he um Wasn't quite sure how he was going to make a living, but he was extremely um, well spoken and he writes a beautiful hand. uh, That was very important back then to have nice handwriting. And um, he also had, uh, well, some experience riding on trains. So one of the first things he did when he got to Chicago was um, pa- try to patent a device that would hold a train window halfway open um, because there were only two ways to ride the train with windows open, which covered you with train smuts and mm-hmm. um, or closed, which was very warm and uncomfortable. So he went into a, a storefront uh, run by a young man named Arthur Devereaux. Devereaux was a a Harvard dropout and he had come to Chicago for exactly the same reason to, to make his own way. He came from a very wealthy family and within um, hours of speaking with Ellsworth Devereaux basically offered Elmer partnership in the uh, patent soliciting business. And, um, uh, that was how Elmer Ellsworth made his uh, living for the first year when he was in Chicago. And then apparently they um, they got hoodwinked. Somebody took all their money, was going to invest mm. it for them, and disappeared with the money. And so Elmer Ellsworth was just... Uh, He couldn't even believe that it happened. And one of the reasons he was so upset was because he and Devereaux, who goes on to um, uh, be an officer in the 22nd Massachusetts during the war— he and Devereaux get involved in the Chicago militia movement, and um, they love being in the militia. They love the camaraderie. They love the uniforms. They love the drill. At this time, Elmer's living in the the YMCA. Um, all these self-made men men needed. They needed places to stay. They needed places to get their hair cut. They needed clothes to buy off the rack. Uh, they needed places to go and get food. And this is how we ended up with all the places uh, that, of course, we think of as just normal now, a place to get your hair cut. But um, they were being developed then, and the Y was a place where a young man could um, get bed and sometimes bed and board and um, not be embarrassed to tell his parents where he was living.
1: So, they joined the militia, this is not the same as joining the army or even the National Guard. The militia is quite a different institution in those days, isn't it?
3: Oh, um, it's not only a different institution in those days, it's different than it was when it started. Um, Mm. Militias, of course, if if you read our founding documents, militias are all over the place. That's how they decided that uh, America would have no standing army, and Mm -hmm. militias would take care of all the problems. Um, But by this time, by the 1850s, uh, militias were social groups that uh, an up-and-coming young man could join uh, in small towns where there were no um, really wealthy people. Militias were sort of a good old boys club. Um, You know, they got together to uh, drink and uh, march in 4th of July and uh, Washington's birthday parades. And that was about it. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they didn't have uniforms, they didn't have guns, nothing like that. It was definitely a social club.
1: But you also had these militias uh, in in the cities that are a little more more uh, high-tone, where they do get the fancy uniforms. Uh, so the oh, men have to buy yeah. their own uniforms?
3: Well, the most famous album would be The 7th New York, and all the mm-hmm. fine young men in New York City joined the— the seventh New York, and they had a beautiful armory, uh, where they met. It was sort of like a, a big clubhouse with a, um, wooden floor, a big wooden floor, like a, almost like a dance floor where they could practice their, uh, drills. Um, and in Chicago, the, uh, Chicago Zouave cadets or Chicago cadets at that time, um, didn't have anything really that nice. Uh, they they tried to do things. Um, they had dances. Young ladies would come and watch them drill. Uh, Elmer rose through the ranks pretty quickly with his uh, ability to to drill. man he, from a very young age, had memorized uh, Scott. Scott's um, drill, uh, infantry drill, and Hardee's infantry drill, which was coming at that time. And then when he was in Chicago, he met a man who um, taught him the Zouave drill, Mm. which was uh, out of the uh, Crimean War, but the the Zouave Algerian troops. So um, he really brought a lot to the table um, as far as that goes. And the militia was certainly his passion
1: so this this gives him and, uh, yeah this gives him something to do besides whatever he's doing to earn a living uh, yes, but he does need to earn a living that that it, it sounds like he was pretty close <laughs> to starvation there in Chicago <laughs>
3: yeah he uh, he was um, I think it's funny he's always writing down what he spends his money on, and he very rarely spends his money on food uh I, I think it's really funny that he always is beautifully dressed and uh, always eats at the better restaurants. He uh, works for a man named uh, whose last name is Cone, and he works as a legal assistant. And uh, Mr. Cone, at this point, lets Elmer sleep on the floor, which, of course, now he doesn't have to pay the wife or room board anymore. And um, so Elmer sleeps in the, on the floor of the, off, of the um, law office and does the copy work for Mr. Cohn at, the, at this time. And then he, his reputation is beginning to grow in the local militia movement. Um, the uh, uh, various militia groups hired him, uh, to, to drill their own troops. And he would drill with Chicago for a while. Then he would go up to Wisconsin and drill there. And he would go, uh, uh, down south to, to Springfield to drill there. He drilled in Rockford. Uh, Rockford was pretty special. That's where he met Carrie, the woman he is, uh, pledged to marry within weeks. And, um, that's when he, t- earning a, a real living begins to take on a whole different amount of importance because um, Carrie's father is uh, a well to do banker in Rockford, and they live in a big mansion. And um, Elmer, of course, wants to marry Carrie, who is 16 at the time, and um, goes to her father. And her father says, Well, you're nice and everything, but you can't make a living. You can't support my daughter. You'd better go out and become a lawyer. And uh, to become a lawyer at that time, you apprenticed with a lawyer until you were able to pass the state bar exam. So Elmer promised Carrie's dad that he would do that. He still had a couple of militia contracts to fulfill, and then he was definitely going to um, uh, work with Mr. Cohn and become uh, a lawyer.
1: So is, he's got some future prospects. uh you say that by 1859 he he's done so much drilling. He's he's got these different groups he's been involved in. Um, the the United States Zouaves that he's got going in Chicago are are the talk of the town when they uh, they parade on July 4th. Uh, at this point, uh, by this time, has he met Abraham Lincoln yet? Yeah.
3: No. In fact, the um, the Chicago Zouaves, his original company,
2: mm-hmm.
3: has now become the U.S. Zouave cadets. He has uh, taught them uh, everything about drill that he knows. They're a fabulous drill team. Of course, they n- never actually dealt with bullets or anything like mm-hmm. that, but um, they have beautiful Zouave uniforms, and it is at this point that they win... A a stand of colors at the county fair that says they're the best drill team in America. Well, uh, several people sort of question whether, in fact, they're the best drill team. So Ellsworth puts it out that he'll match his guys against anybody else. Well, nobody takes him up on the offer. So um, also, he's in Chicago, and he's very well-connected um, and does a lot of political talking with people, and he knows what's going on in in America, right, mm-hmm. that the South is seceding, where everything's starting to fall apart, and we're going to need to be prepared militarily. So he renames the Chicago Zouave Cadets to be the United States Zouave Cadets, And he takes them on a 20-city tour of the Northeast during the the summer of 1860. And he, um, I mean, they are the talk of the town by all means. He... God, they're just—it's—it's like a rock star today, um, or or a movie star. The drill team is met at the city where they are, uh, and escorted to the place where they're going to stay, and um, they give their performances, which are all free, by the way. And Mm -hmm. uh, Ellsworth has uh, finagled his uh, way into the pocketbooks of uh, wealthy people all over Chicago, um, like uh, Simon Buckner and richard yates and and R. K. Smith, and uh, the the Mayor of Chicago, um, Long John wentworth, and um, decides that um, uh, this is what he's going to do. And the twenty city tour is it starts, of course, in Chicago, but it goes through New York City, through Boston, through Philadelphia. They perform at West Point. Um, in front of uh, General Scott and General Hardy and um, who don't think that the Zouab drill is worth much at that point point. Mm-hmm. and then uh, they come back down to Washington and perform for President Buchanan and then make their way home and as they're making their way into Illinois of course they stop at the, the Capitol there at Springfield and it is at the capital where they're practicing on a big field that Ellsworth first meets Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln lives in Springfield. Of course, he lives with his wife and kids and he's told the kids that, yeah, we'll go, we'll go watch the Zouaves. And so he's brought his boys over to watch the Zouaves. And at that point, um, one of the, um, Politicos in Springfield introduces, uh, Lincoln to Ellsworth. And as Ellsworth is capable of doing, he charms Lincoln immediately. And before he leaves Springfield, uh, Lincoln has asked him to, you know, to heck with Mr. Cohn, come and study law in my office. And, um, so Ellsworth says, all right, you know, the last thing I've got to do here is, Turn my zouave cadets over to the mayor of Chicago for his personal use, and then I'll be back and um, we'll study law in your office. So, that's so the, it was at the end of the twenty-city tour. Uh,
1: the the zouave drill is is you know very fast-paced and gymnastic and. Uh, I mean, they do things like form human pyramids, things that really wouldn't be very practical on a battlefield, but it must have been spectacular to watch. I'm going to jump ahead in the story a little bit. Uh, uh, It won't be a spoiler alert to our listeners to know that the 1860 election (laughs) is won by Abraham Lincoln, uh, and by this time, uh, uh, the... Ellsworth is a fast uh, friend of the Lincolns and of uh, John Hay and John Nicolay, the young men who will be Lincoln's secretaries in the White House. Uh, Ellsworth is, is tight enough with this bunch that he gets invited to go on the train from Springfield to uh, to Washington with the Lincoln family and the Lincoln Party. Yes, Does he have yeah. a job on, yeah. on that train or is he just going for, for f- the fun of it?
3: Well he uh, initially said I'll go with your your military bodyguard and Lincoln said oh no no we don't want to have a military presence um and he was going to have several uh captains with him anyway who were from uh the Illinois area he goes you'll you'll be in charge of Um, everything that happens not on the train. You know, just make sure that we have a hotel to stay at and that there's enough room in the hotels for everybody, etc. So in one sense, it was sort of a makeshift job for Ellsworth. But um, after the discovery of the Baltimore plot Mm -hmm. and after they decide what they're going to do with Lincoln leaving the train, Ellsworth is given... Uh, con- control, uh, to, to protect Mrs. Lincoln and the boys from Baltimore all the way to Washington at, at that time. So th- to me, that proves how, how much faith Lincoln had in Ellsworth and knew that he, um uh, you know, Lincoln's most valuable asset, his family, was entrusted to Ellsworth at a time when uh, Lincoln himself was the target of assassination.
1: So Ellsworth is certainly in high regard. Uh, in fact, Lincoln wants him to uh, to become the, the uh, minister of militia, so to speak. Uh, it's not a position that exists yes. yet. Uh, but again, well, just
3: uh, it's it sort of it sort of does though.
1: okay, yeah, um, go ahead. <laughs>
3: uh, you know, we've just been through a couple of elections, and everybody knows how tightly buttoned down Washington has to be when they're going to uh, 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 make a man president. Mm-hmm. So um they're getting ready for the inauguration, and General Winfield Scott, is head of the army. Uh, is in Washington D.C. and he organizes the army, uh, the entire army, almost you know that he can get his hands on, for the protection of Washington D.C. And he has uh, a young uh, young man with him uh, who uh, fought in the um, Battle of Balls Bluff, um, uh, Carl Stone. Mm -hmm. And Stone is the one that is detailed to have all the local militias involved in protecting Lincoln and protecting the city as well. So when you read that, uh, well, you know, this isn't quite how the Army works, and we've sort of got somebody who does that, or that really isn't a thing, what it was was Ellsworth and Lincoln were just um, ignorant of how the army was structured at that point. And as soon as they realized that uh, Winfield Scott had it covered and uh, Colonel Stone was his right-hand man, Ellsworth realized, oh my goodness, there really is no place for me. And his regard for Lincoln caused him to uh, ask Lincoln to stop recommending him for this job that obviously somebody else already had. Which is a very very selfless
1: selfless (laughs) thing to do. Uh, We're going to take another short break. We'll come back in just a minute. We'll talk more with our guest tonight, Meg Groling, author of First Fallen, The Life of Colonel Elmer Ellsworth, The North's First Civil War Hero. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio.
0: Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com that's P R O K O P O W I C Z G at ECU.edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio.
1: Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Talking tonight with Meg Groling, author of First Fallen, The Life of Colonel Elmer Ellsworth, the North's first Civil War hero. So we followed the career of uh, Elmer Ellsworth to Washington, D.C., with the Lincoln Party. Uh, The war begins. He immediately resigns the position he's been given in the army so he can recruit a regiment. He didn't bring any Zouaves with him from Chicago that we've been talking about. Uh, So he's gonna go to New York and and get a whole new regiment. Uh, Who does he go to get?
3: Well, he um, actually, on on March 18th, Elmer Ellsworth, who is staying at the Willard, isn't feeling real well. And he looks, takes one look at his face in the mirror And he thinks he has smallpox. Well, what he has is the measles, and he got it from Willie and Tad, who also Mm -hmm. had the measles. And it was during the time that he was uh, thinking he was dying, uh, he he hysterically locked himself in the room at Willard's, um, and Hay and Nicolay found him. But when he was talking with Hay and Nicolay, they were telling him how serious it was, uh, Sumter Falls, and... Ellsworth decides that he's going to raise a regiment um, after Lincoln calls for 75,000 troops. And he decides he's going to use the New York firemen. Um, The reason for this is that the New York firemen already are in good physical shape. They already know how to work as a team. And as individuals, for instance, they work together to, you know, put out one thing, and then somebody yells, and they look over, and one guy goes to help the other guy. So he feels that these are people who are uh, already ready, you know, that all they really need is some drill and some rifle training, and and that should be it. So he goes to Horace Greeley in New York. He's editor of the New York Tribune. And he enlists and organizes, organizes an 1,100-man regiment composed mainly of volunteer firefighters of New York City in just six days. Mm. And. Uh, the reason it's only 1,100 men is that the mayor of New York was afraid he was going to take every firefighter in the city and had to uh, sort of put the the damper on how many firefighters could actually leave the city. And they were referred to initially as the fire zouaves, but they became the 11th New York Volunteer Infantry.
1: When they get to uh, uh, Washington, there's certainly some concern about their rowdy behavior. We'll have to pass over that in the interest of time. Uh, the famous story concerning Ellsworth is, is of course, his is, is one and only mission uh, involving uh, Alexandria, the Virginia city across the Potomac. Supposedly, there is a Confederate flag flying above the city that Lincoln could see from his office. Is that actually true? Can you actually see from the White House over to Alexandria?
3: Well, uh, I don't think anybody's ever tried it. I don't think he could see it by looking out the window, but he could see it by using a telescope. And the flag... Uh, which I've seen—it's uh, mm-hmm. what's left of it anyway—is in the military museum in in New York. is 18 feet by 24 feet. It is huge, oh. and wow. um, it was at the top of a three-story building on a very tall pole. So I'm, and there was no uh, pollution like there is now. So I'm going to assume that yes, in fact, he Lincoln could see it. It's certainly reported enough.
1: So the uh, the mission given to Ellsworth and his Zouaves, along with a Michigan regiment, is to go over to Alexandria and secure this town, uh, not specifically to take the flag down, but just to... Uh, uh, to, to get yes, control fact, there. They're on
3: their way over to the um, telegraph office to cut uh, uh, communications between Alexandria and the Confederate Army. Um, Alexandria knows that this is happening on mm-hmm. May 23rd. When when all of this happens, that is the morning. Uh, the May 23rd is the evening. May 24th is the morning when uh, the citizens of Virginia vote to ratify the secession of the state. Yes. They seceded before, but it wasn't until the citizens ratified it that it was official. Because Alexandria is so close to Washington, uh, Lincoln had basically said, we're putting the city under martial law. That's all there is to it. He notified the city fathers in Alexandria that that would be happening. The Confederate army was on its way out. they, As the uh, uh, ships and um Soldiers and artillery came in across the bridges. Uh, The uh, Confederate Army in in Alexandria was leaving. There were a few shots exchanged. No one was hit. Uh, So the city was very much aware of the fact that they were going under uh, martial control at that point.
1: So then, uh, so there are the Zouaves in the streets of Alexandria. They send a party down to the telegraph office, as you say, to take care of that business. Uh, and there's Ellsworth, and there's the big flag. Uh, I guess most of us have seen pictures of of the the ensuing death of Ellsworth. Uh, are the pictures accurate? What what actually happened at that? That morning.
3: Well, uh, mostly they are accurate. Um, hardly anybody knew who Brownell was, the man who killed the man who killed Ellsworth. And unless you lived in the South, you didn't know who Jackson was. They weren't particularly famous, as opposed to everybody knowing who Ellsworth was. Ellsworth had seven people with him, uh, several Zouaves, and a lot. Uh, the rest of them were all newspapermen, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, they came into the Marshall House Hotel and said this is under martial law. We're taking down the flag and walked up three flights of stairs, leaving a soldier at the on the landing of each flight, went up to the roof, uh, used buoy knives and cut the halyards, and Ellsworth is dragging the flag down the stairs. When he gets to the second floor landing, and at that point, uh, James Jackson, who is an ardent Confederate supporter, sort of a, a hotspur, gets mm-hmm. out. And he has out his uh, uh, gun. One barrel uh, of the the gun goes through Ellsworth's heart. At that point, then Francis Brownell takes his um, rifle, pushes Brown, or Jackson's gun away. The second shot goes into the uh, uh, wood above the door, and then Brownell shoots um, James Jackson at that point. And it all takes place very quickly, just within seconds, like bang, bang, bang. And um, Ellsworth is dead almost immediately. Jackson dies immediately. um, And they're sort of, you know, well, what do we do now? (laughs) Mm everyone is
1: shocked it, it, it is a shocking scene that, that uh, because we haven't had bloodshed yet to speak of in this war uh, the idea that, that, that people are actually going to die is still not quite fully absorbed I think by uh, by and, Americans
3: wasn't supposed to Supposed to be a, a mission to in which any shooting was supposed to take place. It was just a peaceful transfer of uh, power to the mm-hmm. uh, you know the United States military of the city of Alexandria. So this was uh, definitely a surprise to everybody.
1: What's the reaction to to Ellsworth's death? Uh,
3: well, the immediate reaction is, of course, shock. Um, the uh, Ellsworth's remains, I say, died almost immediately, were taken to a bedroom. Mm-hmm. And they sent a zouave to the wharf to, to tell everybody what had happened. At that point, the zouaves that were remaining at the wharf, the rest of the regiment, was herded back onto a boat and taken out to the middle of the Potomac so that they wouldn't hear what had happened. Mm -hmm. And then Ellsworth's remains were uh, taken to the wharf, wrapped up, and uh, the Marshall House flag was folded and put over him. And he was taken as quickly and as quietly as possible to the naval yard uh, in Washington, where um, then at that point Lincoln was notified. Mrs. Lincoln came almost immediately and uh, brought flowers, uh, and then she arranged To have Ellsworth's body um, checked by the coroner and then embalmed, and uh, she arranged for the casket and everything. And um, when Mr. Lincoln arrived, they decided he would lie in state in the East Room at at the Capitol
1: Uh, or, or the White House.
3: Uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, well, it's the presidential mansion. They didn't really call it the White House at that point. So... (laughs) The East Room there,
1: yeah. And this, I mean, you talk about the the irony of this first funeral in the White House uh, uh, at the beginning of the war with Lincoln as a mourner for the young Ellsworth and how it's bookended, of course, by Lincoln's own funeral. Uh, in eighteen sixty five the uh, I started at the very introduction of the show, pointing out how everybody knew about this. Uh, what was the reaction around the country to to this news? Did people know about it?
3: oh it it was a sh- shock and awe. Every newspaper in the northeast, of course,, um, was pro Ellsworth and they can refer to him as Ellsworth, the martyr. Remember Ellsworth, um, you know, the, the papers were rimmed in black. There was a huge outpouring of grief. People wore uh, badges of mourning, uh, cockades and, and ribbons. Um, huge numbers of people came to, uh, he had three, I guess, I don't know if you call them funerals, but three uh, um, incidents. First was in Washington. Then he was put on the train and taken up to New York City. And then uh, from there he was, uh, went up the Hudson and then uh, across to Mechanicville and um, was buried. He's buried in the cemetery there. So and, and they were it's terribly crowded. People just were hysterical with grief. One thing I think is interesting is Chicago, of course, comes through. Uh, if you ever look at any of the sheet music during the Civil War, it's all coming from Chicago. And uh, if you look at what's left, music for Elmer Ellsworth, both living and deceased, There is more music written for Elmer Ellsworth than there was for any other single person during the Civil War. Um, In the South, of course, it was a little different. Jackson was their martyr. Uh, It is said that Robert E. Lee said, oh, that's a shame. He probably would have led the Army of the Potomac, although I highly doubt that. Mm -hmm. Um, So the nation was just, it was a paroxysm, paroxysm of grief. And then then all of a sudden, other people's sons start to die. Mm -hmm. And and other people's fiancés are killed. And this trickle of blood that begins with Ellsworth, you know, becomes a torrent by first bull run. So at that point, Ellsworth's pretty much forgotten.
1: And... Yet, uh, you know, those of us who study the Civil War recognize the name, uh, and your book certainly brings him back to our memory. The the book has a a fascinating closing uh, appendix on his regiment, the 11th New York, and their performance at Bull Run. Other things we, alas, have no further time to talk about this evening, but... If uh, listeners, although you will know the end of the book before you start, uh, it's a beginning that, uh, that I knew very little about and enjoyed reading, uh, the, the militia movement and the Zouave craze and Ellsworth's role in that, all detailed in the book First Fallen, the life of Colonel Elmer Ellsworth, the North's first Civil War hero. It's by our guest tonight, Meg Groling. Meg, it has been a pleasure talking with you.
3: Well, thank you. Thank you for having me.
1: And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk
0: Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.